it honestly depends on the child and the circumstance, which is what makes this so tricky. You know, just thinking about, especially like becoming a teen when teens are always like, drop me off a block away from school so I can walk there. And then your parent posts a photo of them like snuggling you. I mean, even something as silly as that is like, no, I'm trying to like assert my independence. And now it's being kind of kneecapped by my parent like who has the best intentions. So it's one of those things where there's not a black and white, which like I said, is what makes this so complicated. And I think is what makes it important that the, as a parent, they're willing to have it be an open conversation. Yeah. Welcome to the Social Complex Podcast, where we are diving into the complex impact and influence of social media on brands, brains, and the bigger picture of our modern world. Here's your host, Hillary Applegate. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to grow up as a child, living your life, and then all of a sudden, one day, you realize my entire life up until this point is on social media because my mom and my dad have been posting about me since I was born and even before then. Well, that is happening now to the first generation of social media babies that are now becoming adults, and they are horrified. Today, joining us to discuss her latest article in The Atlantic, we have Kate Lindsay. Kate is the co-founder of Embedded, which is a newsletter about internet culture. She also writes for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Verge, and Vulture. In this episode, we are diving into the phenomenon of social media babies becoming aware of their social media presence online, some of the dangers and pitfalls that are associated with it, the legality behind whether or not your child has the right to delete their social presence once they turn 18 and the laws that are following that sentiment, also monetization of kids and whether or not they are entitled to compensation, and what the difference is between doing doing it for the likes and doing it for the connection. Without further ado, let's get into it. Kate, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me on the Social Complex podcast today. We cannot talk about what is going on in today's world because we have way too much to cover on. I know. (laughs) On the past and your research and your work on really trying to understand the effects of social media on the first generation of kids that are now turning into adults that were exposed to social media, not by their own choice, but by that of their parents and those around them. So let's talk about the beginning of it all, the early days of sharing content and what you refer to in your article as the children of Facebook era. What do you remember about that time and that social media sphere? That time. So Facebook, I was, I wouldn't say I was a late adopter, but I was a MySpace girl through and through for a while. And it wasn't until people around me in high school started getting on Facebook. And I think I also was like nerdy enough that I was like, I'm not old enough to be on Facebook, so I can't join it. Like I literally was like, I think there was a requirement that you had to be in high school or something. Like that's how early it was. But I finally joined And yeah, so the early years, I mean, we're at such an interesting time now with social media in general. And I would say like this article and the social media babies is just like one facet of it where like I would say the first 15 years was just this unregulated social experiment where we just like embraced all these platforms. I I don't want to call it reckless abandon because we had no reason to think about any consequences because it was all so new. And so a lot of people just 
mapped what they were doing with, you know, scrapbooking or, you know, family newsletters or home videos. They mapped that behavior onto these shiny new platforms that made it, one, like really easy all in one place, and two, meant that it was really easy to show people. So, uh, you know, in the case of what this article is about for families and parents, especially Mm -hmm. new parents, especially, you know, anyone going through a milestone knows like the first place you take it is social media. And so in the case of like this time period, Facebook was a place where you would be like, look, here's my baby and here's what my baby's doing now. And then like, oh, does anyone have any advice for what to do with sort of this issue I'm having with my child? And there was nothing in history that would have shown that this was a platform that was going to be around long enough or like not even if you would ask anyone, I don't think that they would have even been like, oh, it's going to die. But just no one had reason to even think about the fact that it was going to be around long enough for those children that you're talking about to be on it themselves. We just had no precedent for that. But at the time, it was just a place where you would post about your children the way you'd post about your day, about what you were eating. And up until really now, the idea that there was any issue with that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I think back to the early days of Facebook specifically, the status used to be Kate Lindsay is, and then whatever you were doing. Right, right. I think now, like, we don't even need a prompt to do those things on social media. Like, we just know. People know now how to behave on social media and what it wants from us. But at the time, we were prompted every time we logged in to be like, this is what is happening right now. And if you're a parent, any parent would know what's happening right now is probably you are taking care of your child or, you know, you are exhausted. That is your life. And so that is what you're going to post about. So what was the vibe, you know, you, your own experience of social media, but then, you know, taking a look at it more from a outside perspective, looking at the adults of that time, what was the vibe of like children and adults with those online profiles? We know they didn't really have much of a barometer of what was going to happen, but where was that difference between the kids? kids in high school and middle school getting these accounts versus the adults that were adopting these accounts. Yeah, I feel like it's so interesting because when I think about the difference, I feel like when you were a teen on social media, like I would routinely have these assemblies about, you know, how to be safe online, how to not, you know, get catfished, you know, be careful what I post, all this stuff. And there was none of that for adults. An adult was a fully formed person with children. And so anything they were doing online, you know, there wasn't as much to worry about. But it's because we couldn't have foreseen these problems. But so adults at the time, I would say that, you know, as someone who was luckily not as young as some of the children that I speak about in my piece, but, you know, I would get tagged on family vacations. My parents would share a status about what colleges I was getting into, you know, and I would be very purposeful with the type of images I would put myself of myself on Facebook. I would want to make sure I looked like really cool yeah. and and that I was projecting this image. And then like my mom would dive bomb him there with like a photo of me like out of graduation looking very stuffy. Um, so there was always a little bit of that tension. But, you know, parents were connecting with their peers the way that teens were. And especially with something like Facebook that had you know groups and fan pages and resources, parenting still is a huge part of that app and a huge community like that app is host to a really big community of parents and so naturally it would be the place where you know there's no other other place you could put those updates about your family about your life that were guaranteed to reach the people you wanted and it, it feels like social media definitely had replaced that 
family photo album and, you know, kind of the, even the high school reunions, you know, that, that Mm -hmm. people used to have and hold dear and you would see someone that you hadn't seen a photo of or even, you know, heard of for 20 years. And it's like, oh my gosh. But now that is a click away. You can be like, ooh, who was that kid that I sat next to in, in chem class? And you can just pop mm-hmm. pop them right in there and be like, oh, they're married with kids. Yeah. Crazy. But I literally did that two days ago <laughs> with a friend. We, we were like, we, we heard someone's name who we hadn't heard in like 20 years. And we found them. Yeah, you're just like, what are you up to mm-hmm. right now? And so mm-hmm. but the, the, the family photo album, the high school reunion, but it goes deeper than just a catalog. You talk about this in your article mm-hmm. about how now – not only are parents sharing what they're doing, but at this time in social media, they're getting that validation back and the reactions from what they're sharing, whether it is a cute photo mm. of their kid or whether it is a funny story of something that happens. What is the result of that combination of feeling that safety of sharing with your community and then simultaneously also getting that validation? That's like a super interesting relationship because it's not, you know, as Facebook obviously is sort of the, you can kind of point to as the beginning of this, but from Facebook came Instagram. And then now we have things like TikTok. All of these platforms have these kind of like engagement validation metrics that have just been like proven to tap into the exact same part of our brain as like someone who's gambling. It it does trigger an addiction. So you have this unspoken draw to kind of get a hit of that social media dopamine and you have sort of on the other side of things you know your your work as a parent which is often undervalued you don't get paid to be a parent you don't get performance reviews or bonuses you don't really get the same kind of validation that you would from any other work and it is work and so you put those two together and you realize this thing that I'm doing this raising of children that I normally have to kind of do in the dark or without, you know, thanklessly, I can bring that to social media and finally for the first time get some acknowledgement because the real proof of anyone's work as a parent is the child themselves. And so, you know, you you it it's totally understandable that you would, you know, take a cute picture of your child and be like, I want to post this. And you get, you know, people in your comments being like, so cute, or they're growing up to look just like you, or like you're doing such a great job. Like that's the only place you're gonna get that kind of feedback. And so it makes sense that parents want to tap into it. Wanting people to think your child is cute is not a crime. I think when it gets tricky is, you know, if you're authentically just being like, here's a photo of my kid, so cute, that's fine. But when you start to get too wrapped up in that social media validation, whether you are knowingly doing this or not, it can start to lead to using your child for content, using them a bit like a prop, you know, starting to do things for the posting rather than posting what it is you're doing, which is something that I think is a balance. People have to strike with all aspects of their life when social media is so omnipresent. But when you bring like a child involved, I'm thinking there's like a really, there's an instance, this is of a a mommy blogger who she uploaded a video, it's deleted now, but uh, she accidentally left in the part where she was trying to get her son to help her pose for the thumbnail of the YouTube video. And she's kind of coaching him, look more sad, look more like it was supposed to be kind of clickbaity. And the son keeps being like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And she left in this footage of her being like, no, come on one second, one second. It's like something like that, where it's like, oh, that isn't a child anymore. That's a prop. And I think there, that's obviously an extreme example, but there are just like smaller, more um, more sneaky ways that I think that can work its way into, you know, because I often think like, oh, am I doing this because I think it's fun or because I think it would be good on Instagram? I've had that thought before, but at least the only person I'm subjecting to that is me. <laughs> but when, you know, 
you're having a child, I don't know, like pose or try something or or just kind of contorting them in a way that isn't for them, it's for your social media presence. I understand the impulse because you've fallen victim to the same thing we're all fallen victim to, which is sort of the dopamine hit of those likes and that engagement. But you're kind of taking someone who is a child and and subjecting them to that. And, you know, that, that's one instance. And then, you know, we get to like things that get outside of sort of, you know, you, you, can, you can't really give the benefit of the doubt to anymore. Like if you're posting a video of a child having a tantrum because, you know, like the first anecdote that starts my piece is about a Natalie, the TikTok video that featured these two children on Christmas. It was posted on Christmas day of this past December and it's them receiving suitcases and inside the suitcases were tickets to Disney world or a Disney world cruise or something like that. But obviously these children, they were like two and four years old. They just thought they got suitcases, which like now I'd be like, great. But as a two-year-old, you're like, this is the worst present I've ever gotten. <laughs> um, and so before they really understood what was in it, they see these suitcases and they start to cry and they start to get really upset. And the parents, you know, really try to explain, but it's not working. Like they're, they're too far gone. And they upload this video kind of jokingly, like, oh my gosh, Christmas, Christmas gone wrong. But all the comments are like, oh my gosh, these children are ungrateful. Um, watching this video is birth control was one of the comments. Just all these things that, you know, it, it was up. It got around 9 million views before it was taken down. And that's like an example of, I would say after the first 100,000 views, like being generous when you started to see that was the reaction, that should have been taken down because that's a video of your children. The only reason I can think it stayed up for so long was because the power of seeing that view count go up and seeing that engagement and seeing the attention it was getting kind of overrode that parental instinct that is there to protect your children. And I think that shows how easy it is to kind of get duped. I don't think anyone's doing it on purpose. I don't think anyone's being malicious. Like, I don't think anyone goes into this being like, haha, this is going to be bad for my kid. Like, obviously, no parent thinks that. But it can just show, I think, how... It's one thing to say social media is addicting, social media taps this part in your brain. But that's like an example where I just think that should show you how powerful it is that a parent allowed 9 million people to kind of tear apart their children until finally they were like, you know, this has gone too far because it it was too far immediately. Yeah. (laughs) And those kids are not yet adults, but they're going to become Mm -hmm. adults. And The basis of your article is around the first era of social media babies are now 18 and they are now entering their own individual adult identities and they've had their growing up being in some degree, form or fashion online before it was their social media channel and it was Mm -hmm. through that of their parents' lens. How how are the kids doing? How are the kids feeling about their lives yeah. being documented online? And what's that range of sentiment? Yeah. So I'd say the way that I kind of first started to see children noticing this was they would talk about um, that they were sort of doing entering the job search. And so this would be kind of graduating high school or, you know, within high school looking for their summer job. And I think we're, we're told a lot, like, you know, be careful what you post online because employers can see it. And so I think they would be doing, you know, a cursory kind of, let me Google my name and see what would show up. And then they would see, wait, here's me like now. And then here's me when I'm four. And so an employer, like an employer is going to Google me and they're going to see this four-year-old picture of me. And then, you know, that's when you start to see, when you kind of follow that thought, okay, are there tantrum videos of me? Are there videos of me in diapers? Are there videos of me in the bathtub? All those could show up 
when an employer is Googling me. I mean, I know I've Googled dates before I've gone on them, you know, and now I'm thinking about, you know, people now, oh my gosh, is like a, a potential romantic partner going to see these things. And and then, you know, there, there's this thing happening now, but, um, and, and, you know, these now adults are talking about it, but this kind of realization is something the Family Online Safety Institute I spoke to them for the piece. It's called a digital coming of age. It can happen as early as 10, 11, 12 years old. And I think it's happening earlier because those children are adopting social media earlier and earlier. But uh, the digital coming of age is essentially when children start to become aware that they already exist online outside of what they choose to post. And for some of them, it can be really horrifying. Like in the case of sort of one of the, the children, now adults that I spoke to, her name's Kami. Her mother would post a lot about her medical stuff. You know, I, you know, kind of what I was talking about earlier, the mother would turn to Facebook to be like, my daughter's going through this or back at the hospital or here's what's happening. But children in Kami's school would, you know, see these things because it was on a public profile. And she ended up dropping out because for her, she, she did went through a decent amount of medical issues uh, growing up. And one of those things was MRSA. And even she said teachers had seen her mom posting about that she had had MRSA. She was totally in the clear to be back at school, but the teacher like had her sit at a different desk. You know, students were like, oh, stay away from her. All this stuff that they only knew about because of social media. And all they needed to know was that she was clear to be back in school. I mean, they didn't didn't need need to know why she was okay to be there. But then because this information was available, she was kind of ostracized. In other cases, you know, it's a joke on TikTok. Uh, it's a phrase like that it, it, where people will just talk about the horror of hearing a classmate say, I found your parents' social media, because what what they understand that to mean is, I have found pictures of you as a child. You know, that's what they know that that means. It means that they're looking at all the photos that the family posted. And it can be, you know, the, it's a joke on TikTok, but that can really range. Like if you have, you're being bullied in school. I mean, I was on the internet enough that I had stuff get discovered by people in school and that was super humiliating. But like I said, like that stuff I posted, I can't even imagine the idea of someone found something that my parent posted, which in its own way is kind of out of my control to do anything about because, you know, I'm sure we'll touch on this more, but a big part of why this is so difficult for children is it if they want anything to change it would mean going to their own parents and saying you know you did not in these words but what the parent might hear is you did something wrong or you have hurt me things that are really difficult to say to a parent and so it puts them in kind of a tough spot where it's just this online dossier of potentially embarrassing things that they kind of both legally and emotionally feel like they don't have any control over. So let's start with the emotional side of it. Is it just intense mm-hmm. moments like a medical diagnosis, a tantrum, or is it also, you know, in the sweeter moments like cuddling up by the TV mm-hmm. or, you know, hanging out at a museum or doing something, you know, sweet? Does it generally fall more on things that are objectively embarrassing or does it also fall within kind of the everyday moments? Yeah, I think it honestly depends on the the child and the circumstance, which is what makes this so tricky because there is no like black and white right thing to post and wrong thing to post. Like, I mean, I'd argue that there's, I mean, there are certain things that are wrong to post and then there are things that are unadvisable to post. But, you know, I'm thinking about things 
you know, who you are as a child may not be how you identify as an adult. And so that could be something that even in the sweeter moments, it's a record of you or or a way of talking about you that isn't how you identify now. I'm thinking specifically gender, but there are other there are other things that are just you know just thinking about, especially like becoming a teen when teens are always like, drop me off a block away from school so I can walk there, and then your parent posts a photo of them like snuggling you. I mean, even something as silly as that mm-hmm. is like, no, I'm trying to like assert my independence, and now it's being kind of kneecapped by my parent, like who has the best intentions. So it's one of those things where. There's not a black and white, which, like I said, is what makes this so complicated. And I think is what makes it important that the, as a parent, they're willing to have it be an open conversation, yeah. making it clear to your child that if there's anything that you ever post that they want you to get rid of, that they should feel empowered to say that or that something they're fine with when like, at one point as they get older, they should be allowed to kind of retract it and be like, never mind, take that off. It just needs to be a conversation. So that's the emotional side. What? Let's talk about the legal mm-hmm. side now. What does the law say today about privacy rights with these kids and, you know, not just when they're kids, but also when they grow up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is where it gets a little bit tricky because there's not much legal precedent in terms of like, it hasn't quite happened yet that a child has like sued their parent. It has started happening and there has been more progress on this in places like in like the EU. There's one case over in Europe um, that, you know, an 18 year old sued their parent for the photos. But, you know, America doesn't, isn't as far along on that. You know, I'm thinking the EU also has like the right to be forgotten, which is a bit more reputational, but it's like, you know, I should be able to have these things like these sort of things that I don't want plaguing me and my reputation online, I should be able to remove. That's something that's a bit more established over in the EU. America doesn't have those things. And when it comes to like actual privacy, everyone has a right to privacy, but sort of it gets really murky with children because when you kind of look into the more like really nitty gritty legal stuff, the parental authority kind of supersedes a lot of it. It is like generally assumed legally that the parent has the child's best interest at heart. They're obviously... I wouldn't say exceptions to this, but there's obviously sort of nuance to this. Um, we've seen CPS get called on parents from things that get posted on social media or platforms themselves have rules. You know, you can't post nudity of a minor. You can't do anything that's like violence. They, there are some safeguards, but when it comes to what we're talking about, which is this more gray area stuff of like bath photos, tantrums, someone posting about potty training or them getting their first period, like none of that is off limits legally or on a platform in terms of a platform's own like terms of use. Um, And it is when it comes to wanting to get those photos removed, it's also pretty hard because unless the child can kind of say like, that's my photo or that they're being impersonated in some way, just saying, I don't like this picture of me, I want it taken down. There's not much they can do with that. And there are movements to kind of change this. But the so I've touched on these two things in the piece. Um, there's one, the, the biggest, the one that's moving furthest along, and there are, there's a few similar bills in other states, but there's one moving along in Illinois where it's children of parents who monetize them, photos and videos of them. They are fighting to kind of, one, have the children be entitled to a certain percentage of the money that's made off of their image in these sort of like family blogs or TikToks or mommy bloggers on Instagram, that kind of thing. And also what they're trying to get folded into that is when the child turns 18, they can request anything gets taken down and they have that legal right, which is like super important. But this language right now only applies to monetized accounts 
in terms of just like an everyday person posting, which is something that is going to apply to a majority of Americans. Like, obviously, it's really important that these uh, monetized accounts are legislated and and treated, I think, similarly to how like there are things like the, the Coogan Law and Coogan accounts for, for child actors. Um, but the vast majority of us are not monetized or our social media isn't monetized. And despite that, there are no kind of there hasn't been much movement in, in that area. I think because like we keep touching on, it is just so complicated. Yeah. And it, it also is in a way difficult to know mm-hmm. where everything you posted about your kid is and, you know, to be able to go back yeah. through and catalog that and be able to archive that effectively. Like there, you'd have to go through hand by hand, like item by item. Yeah. And assuming that you've been monetizing, you've got a lot of content that you're sifting through. It's, fascinating to think about the checks and balances of all of that, you know, when it comes to how are they going to really enforce this and how long is that going to take? And is that also going to open up opportunity for platforms themselves to, you know, start incorporating some type of tagging measurement to make it easier for people to stay in compliance? Because when you're talking about everyday Joe Schmoes, they're not used to operating at the same level as a business, even influencers and mommy bloggers, you know, they're not Mm -hmm. operating at a business level where you have your compliance department and your checks and balances to make sure you're Mm -hmm. in your legality and to have that in at a state level. That's so in, I don't want to say intense, but intense to kind of the regular average person. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Well, yeah, that makes me think of like when you're talking about how we don't even know what's out there. Some a place where people are kind of running into that is not with children, but actually in death, because there's a lot of there's something that's introduced um, that is like this is very complicated. But I've been looking into it recently of just basically what happens to your digital assets when you die. And the most complicated part is the people who usually are the the settlers of the estate have to just like track down like every single Netflix account, Spotify account, WordPress account, if they want to sort of, you know, make sure they get everything and then be able to sort of carry out the wishes of the deceased. And in that case, when it comes to like profiles, you know, something like Facebook or something like Gmail, when, you know, they, they will accept like a death certificate from the person settling the estate to be like, I'd like to, this person has died. I either want to memorialize the account or I want to wipe it or, you know, I want to do whatever it is I want to do with it, but they have to prove the person has died. And so I do wonder if maybe rather than there being like specifically a legal thing, if it's something platforms could do, like if you can like prove I am this person, you know, like I'm not a I'm not smart as smart as people at Facebook, but I'm thinking like, oh, what if you give a birth certificate and you can be like, I am this person, I'm this person's child, I don't want these photos up. Is there something like that that the platforms could be in charge of in terms of you being like, okay, well, t- we can take these down for you and you can kind of dispute it that way. But um, Interesting. I mean, maybe people with bigger brains than me might know why that would or would have worked. Yeah, <laughs> no, that would be mm-hmm. well, fascinating. I haven't even thought about it from the yeah. perspective of death too, because you're right. You know, what are you, you going to do with all your social media accounts? Like, Yeah, oh my God. And it's funny because some people there. are like, you know, get rid of it all or some people, you know, but it's also like a good memorial. Uh, it's, a whole, it's a whole other thing, but It's just, that's just like another one of these things, the way that, you know, children growing up is where it's just like, we didn't even think to account for any of this stuff when we dove headfirst into this sort of social media experiment. And now 
children grow up, as people pass away, as X, Y, Z other things happen, we start to hit these things that we never anticipated. And now we're kind of like retroactively being like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cart before horse has mm-hmm. absolutely happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so from the perspective of these kids, what mm-hmm. does a healthy balance of parents sharing stories and photos online versus keeping things private look like? So I think it's a little bit what I talked about earlier, where it's just like allowing it to be an open conversation, allowing, you know, even as a child has that digital coming of age and is realizing they're online, being able to be like, okay, this is, I like this photo, or I don't want that photo posted, or just checking even before, is it okay if I post this? So there, there, there's that. But um, I think what the parent can do is be cognizant of audience, because this kind of varies from app to app on something like Instagram, you can have that be kind of a closed loop, like you can private it or you can post on close friends. There are options in terms of controlling who sees the content. And so, you know, it's not going to make its way in front of accidentally in front of a classmate of your child. But on a platform like TikTok, TikTok is not a closed loop. There's really unless, you know, it, it is built to catapult your content, no matter how many followers you have, no matter how much you've posted before. If you manage to like tick off the boxes of this of the magical algorithm, you know, like this this family did with the their children opening Christmas presents, it will just get catapulted out. And you have no idea who sees it. And it happens so fast. I mean anyone who's gone viral on TikTok knows that it, it's not a slow drip. You post the video, you go and make a sandwich, you walk back and suddenly it has 10,000 views. And that's just the beginning. And it just exponentially grows. You can't stay in, tar- in charge of the comment section. Um, So something like that, I mean, videos of your children on TikTok, you have to just operate every time you post something. Am I okay with hundreds of thousands of people I do not know seeing this? I think personally for me, the answer would always be no about my child, just because you cannot control what each of those people are going to do. There are a lot of children on TikTok, like being posted by their parents. So that's one of those things where it's like, this, this article is just about really Facebook which now seems so antiquated. Yeah. I can't even imagine the children of, of TikTok. Like, I mean, it's going to be an exponentially worse issue. Well, to be fair, back in the day, Facebook did not have the same tightened privacy that it does now and the right. access mm-hmm. to be able to turn mm-hmm. stuff on. So yeah, back in the day, it was pretty like open source. You could kind of right. look around no, it's and true. poke around and find everybody. Oh my God. It's true because like Kami was saying her mom would just accept anyone. Like she had a, I think it was technically like a private account, but anyone who friend requested her, she'd be like, sure. Because like, it was just really early. And it was like, oh, for friends. Like Like, um, LinkedIn approach. (laughs) Right. Yeah, sure. Why not? Sure. (laughs) Come on in. Water is warm. Yeah. (laughs) What are some of the psychological impacts after speaking, you know, with these people who have are now adults, what have they realized psychologically as far as being a kid that grew up in this area And what are they experiencing now in their adult life that has come as a direct response to this upbringing? With Kami and then like some other people that I've like spoken to or read about, the sort of main thing that happens is a lack of trust. Basically a worry that, you know, Kami says she really doesn't have a relationship with her mom anymore because she just doesn't trust that any conversation they have or anything they do isn't going to be taken to social media. And she says that's something that comes up even among friends. Like she'll have a hard time just kind of, you know, there's there's just a, a wariness and an on her guard kind of thing that follows her around of just like, is what I'm doing going to be documented? A feeling like there's not control over 
her image and how she presents herself online. And I know in other children I or you know, former children that I've like looked into, they have a real protectiveness over their image and their privacy because it's something they felt that they didn't have growing up, or they have a real discomfort with photos being taken of them. And I, I think it all it all comes back to the same like the sense of control, the sense of not knowing where it's going or what it's gonna look like. And so they've kind of gone in the opposite direction and they just really shut it down. Privacy is very important to them. And it's interesting that it is existing in this world where people their age are being asked to share more and more online, but because of what they've been through, they're shutting it down. They don't want that. And I, I that's weird to exist in. Like, like, like I sort of say that just to be like, like that is a lifestyle choice that is limiting because of the peers that they're probably surrounded with. And that's a problem for, for parents now who want to make, you know, because there are parents who grew up on social media who are now able to be like, okay, I'm aware. Like I've been on social media obviously long enough to regret things I have posted. And so I think this is why this is a problem that happened in the early Facebook years because none of the parents posting grew up on social media and were able to know what it felt like to be embarrassed of something that was posted. I think that embarrassment right there, that's the like golden ticket as far as if you have never posted anything that you regret, you are lacking the gauge. (laughs) Like I remember the first time I looked back at statuses I posted on Facebook when I was in college, I would look back at what I posted in early high school. It's a visceral reaction. It would just be like, yeah, it would just be, you know, obviously nothing like hateful or abhorrent, but just like this is like weird or rude or in bad taste or just like gross because I was just like growing up online. And so I know now like when Twitter seemed like it was going to shut down, I just like decided to go through all my tweets and I've only been on Twitter as an adult and I didn't run into anything. Like I said, like, I feel like I was like, you know, anything cancelable and like that, but it was just like, oh, like this isn't how I would want to be perceived online. And so there's an awareness not only that things are posted that you regret, but also that you don't know what it is that you could post that you'll later regret. Like you really just yeah. don't know because you don't know how times will change and how you'll change. And so I think if you've had that embarrassment, you're able to kind of be a little bit more forward thinking when it comes to, I think, like posting photos of your children because you're like, okay, like I will never know what it feels like to suddenly realize all of my life was online without my control. Like I, I don't have... The closest thing I can liken it to is regretting something I've posted. And so it's something that now I would think about a lot for my own children. It's something that like a, I spoke to a parent for the piece who is a millennial and was like, okay, I don't, I don't want to post my children online anymore. She either, you know, won't show the face or will cover the face. And the biggest barrier that she faces is other people because you would think kind of after all these millennials growing up and realizing what oversharing is and what regretting stuff is, you'd think it would kind of be a generation wide thing. I, I mean, obviously, I think more people are cognizant of the issue and more people are talking about it now. But um, even with millennials, who you'd think would know better. Yeah. It, it's still an issue. They're some of the biggest offenders right and now. I, there's something to be said, too, about the fact that we're still in Gen Z you know, a generation alphas mm-hmm. like growing up right now, but yeah. the Gen Zs are the ones who are the first social media babies. And they're yeah. also the ones that are way more open on social media. And they're the ones that are on TikTok yeah. talking about like the get ready with me while I talk about this embarrassing mm-hmm. story that happened. Yeah. Oversharing to a degree, but it's mm-hmm. theirs and it's their story yes, to be yeah. able to tell and to talk. So it'll be really fascinating to see what happens once that 
age group becomes parents themselves, mm-hmm. you know, because millennials, we, yeah. we are still in this middle ground of content that we share is, you know, going to be an expression of us mm-hmm. and we're curating it in a way that like is a yeah. certain style of aesthetic and, you know, my, my yeah. online persona <laughs> and all these things. And then we're also yeah. the ones that are way more like hyper aware. We're gonna, we're the ones that are going to be going through yeah. our Twitter account to make sure we didn't say anything offensive like yes. 15 years ago yeah. versus Gen Z right now. They're kind of like, eh, <laughs> eh. So, yeah. I mean, talk about not even being able to know what's out there. Like, you know, you know, I, we feel like, I feel like I've been like unintentionally plugging threads this whole podcast, but like, <laughs> I'm just thinking about like all these new apps that are coming out that you like either move to or you try on and then drop like that digital footprint is so, and it's so interesting actually to hear you say that because Gen Z is so open and they've almost started, I've noticed they've started to check themselves a little bit because someone will post something like downright, like out of pocket like why would you ever put this on the internet oh, yeah. and people will just comment digital footprint like <laughs> i've seen that comment pop up when they're just like the what the, the thing that they want to express is like to the to the person who's posting it is like what you've just posted which is insane is now, is now part of your digital footprint so like funny. do you know this and so they, they do check it a little bit but something i also found interesting when i was looking into this about gen z is there's obviously learning that they were posted online but they're also discovering their parents' social media, yeah. their parents' dormant Facebook account and looking back and and being like, oh my gosh, like here's how my parent existed before me, which is like the closest I had to that was I remember coming across my parents' yearbook and seeing them like as teens and that was so odd. And that was like maybe a half hour little snapshot that I've ever gotten in my entire life. Whereas Gen Z and especially Gen Alpha are going to have access to like- Mom partying in college. Lives, like- Right. Like, so it'll come right up. I mean, it's just so, it's just like, that's not an audience. You, you definitely don't think, you know, you think about someone who's hiring you or whatever, maybe seeing these photos, Mm -hmm. like your kids are like now, like, you know, cause I'm I'm thinking now, like when they teach the, the safety online, are they like, I feel like it's, it's not just, oh, college admissions could see this employers could see it. It's like your own kid could very well be on this app. And you're going to tell them like, oh, you can't, you know, you, this is your curfew da, 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 and they can like pull up you being like blackout in a TikTok. It's just, I know. it's a whole, I mean, assuming these apps stick around, I think there's like some skepticism that they, you know, everyone's like, oh, where will, I wrote this piece about there are parents who are locking down social media accounts for their children as soon as they're mm-hmm. born. They're like locking down Instagram handles and stuff. <laughs> and a lot of like the big comments are like, oh, Instagram won't be around. But it's like Facebook is still here. Yeah. Like I don't use it. But people, it's still one of the biggest apps. It is. Um, yeah, it's the, we the biggest. We just don't know how long something's going to stick around. And yeah. you kind of have to be aware that, I mean, that that's like, yeah, that, that your, your kids could see it. Even kids you don't have yet could see Even it. Even Threads, you know, Threads takes your Instagram mm-hmm. handle and has yes. secured to be able to open up this new app. So we don't know where this is going to go, but... It, you have right. to think about the fact that Meta, as a parent company, is always going to be investing in the future. It's why they're dumping so much money into mm-hmm. the metaverse and the next iteration yeah. of Web3 and you know what's coming next because I think that they know Facebook is not going to you know stick around in its form right. of Facebook. But what is the next Facebook? What's the next Instagram? How can right. they really build out that? Yeah. So all of that still is very much intertwined with each other. Yeah. And it's so weird. So I do like Operation Santa every year. And so you you look through kind of these letters that 
current Gen Alpha is like asking for. They all want Oculus headsets. They all want like a VR thing. That's pretty snazzy for Operation Santa. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh my God. They they always put that and it's like, okay, I'm not going to use that, but I'll get, I know I'm always like, I'm always like, oh my gosh, your parents should tell you to because sometimes that's all it says. That is like, well, no crazy though. That. that That is like the prized possession. That is like the iPhone. Because I feel like for us, when we hear about the metaverse, we're like flop, like yeah. no one wants to do that. Like that looks so lame. Why would I go to work in a Roblox type situation? But then, and that was like a big eye opener for me this past Christmas was to be like, they all want virtual reality. And so it's just a generational thing. I can't even fathom the sort of things that you'll have to worry about with that. And the the digital footprint though is very real. And I, I don't know if I'm like the outlier here. I actually love mm. my past like social media. Mm. I even don't mind. My mom also posted, you know, pictures of me as a kid on, yeah. but it was more of like a throwback at that time than it was like modern day. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah. I, I have to say like, I kind of loved it because it, it does bring everything, you know, that I'm curious about when I think about how, how was mm-hmm. I at that age? How was I showing up as a child? And, you know, really like, what yeah. was my, what was my vibe? And I think now as an adult looking at it, I have a lot of compassion for that kid who mm-hmm. was, you know, the, acting up a certain kind of way or like said stupid things yes. off the oh cuff. Like I, I, I don't know if that's just me getting past the age where it's like so embarrassing that I'm like, oh my god, wipe it from the face right. of the earth. And now I'm like, oh, that's actually really sweet. Like a little small one, know. you know. I, I, I feel the same way to be honest because I, I do wonder if you're right where the like. I was a child. Like, it doesn't matter. The thing that's, like, plaguing me is I can't find my old MySpace because MySpace, like, I, it doesn't really work as a website anymore. I, I don't I, – like, it's still there, but I've tried every which way to find my old MySpace. I can't do it. And I would love nothing more yeah. than to, like, anthropologically look back it's a time capsule. on that. Yeah. And the closest I have is I found my Tumblr from, like, college, which is annoying because I had an earlier one that I cannot find. But for the same reason, I lost like probably a whole afternoon when I found my college Tumblr, just like being like, oh my God, this is who I was. All I did was reblog like feminist memes that I would find like very cringy now because they're all like Leslie no quotes. But I'm like, I'm, I can't be embarrassed by that person because I, like I, what you said, I like have a fondness because I'm like, oh my gosh, like that was me. Yeah. And this is the closest I'll get to like seeing that living breathing version of myself because I spent so much time online and it's it's hard because sometimes I regret there are times because I think the reason I can't find my high school tumblr is I think I did delete it in like a fit of like ah this isn't me anymore Mm -hmm. and now I'm like oh I would love nothing more than to look back at it but like you know it wasn't like that no one's stumbling across my my tumblr so I mean I wouldn't love if like, you know, it was brought up at like at work at like a PowerPoint to be like, look what Kate yeah. posted. But the internet is such a great time capsule tool. Like I think we both like don't mind that stuff being out there because I would like to think that there would be some knowledge by anyone else who would stumble across it coming into mm-hmm. it. Look like t- to know like, oh, this is really old yeah. or like this is a past version of the person. But it requires that level of understanding and like I think something Gen Z really, really struggles with is things resurfacing, call out culture, um, Mm -hmm. this need to be both very like vocal on issues, but also like on the right side and to be informed. I wonder if that's maybe a little bit why there's a heightened anxiety about this stuff, because I do feel like there's less compassion for how someone can grow online 
which is like funny or curious coming from a generation that is so unfiltered online. Like you really, you can't expect, like, I feel like I leave a party and I, I'll just think over one thing I said that I think came out wrong or I could have phrased differently. And it's like, at least I have the benefit of that. Those words are gone. Yeah. Like they're in, they're just in the ether. But like, you know, if you're growing up online, especially teens growing up in the pandemic, like everything is just recorded. Yeah. And so I think there's, there's obviously some anxiety around that and, w- and wanting to always be presenting the best version of yourself. And sometimes these older artifacts can contradict that version of yourself that you want out there. And I think that, you know, that does go back to the whole emphasis of the article, which is parents posting about kids is a very different story because they don't have that autonomy over what it is that you're posting. And while what you post yourself is sweet or, you know, even cringy or something like that, you did it. Like you're the one that press right. send, you're the mm-hmm. one that recorded it in the first place. And so you get to kind of live with the consequences of your own action on that. Whereas with parents, you do have a little bit more of a responsibility when it does come to how you are sharing your child online with the world. So I want to just talk about this really fast. What are some of those risks, both internally in your own unit, in your own friend group, and and also externally to the world when it comes to posting about your kid on social media? I would say there's two sides of the coin. I mean, or two sort of bigger issues that I would see. Like there's obviously what the emotional stuff that we were talking about of just especially as children grow up, kind of their main job is to figure out their identity. And I think it's really hard when it can feel like that identity is being chosen for them. And so that could result in a lot of like tension between the child and the parent, a lot of like discomfort between the child and how they interact with the world, um, with their peers, how they see it. And then there's just obviously like a safety issue. I mean, it is a weird phenomenon that I think at least in New York or places where there are influencers, it is a very weird phenomenon to recognize someone else's child, um, which has happened to me. It's happened to other people because someone with a large following who posts their child a lot, you don't even know that you know this child well enough to recognize them until you see them. And that's just, and, and like, I'm obviously just passing by and being like, oh my gosh, I know who that kid is. But the idea just like from a protective privacy standpoint that someone you don't know knows who your child is that should be cause for concern and I mean Kami had someone when she said that she was biking home from school once and that the, she was followed home by someone who she believes recognized her from social media because she felt this person following her home and then she got a message on social media the next day that was like I saw you or whatever and so like that's like a very a very scary thing and it's like I don't want to you know stoke unnecessary panic because I you know I think the biggest issue that comes out of this is the emotional one but just in terms of like is it worth the risk when there are accounts of how being posted online can result in being recognized by strangers I don't think it is worth the risk and I think that that should call for some introspection of who do you want recognizing your child on the street it should only be someone you trust your child with (laughs) I feel like this has a really significant overlap with reality TV shows that have kids in them. Yes. Yes. And actually, I was reading recently, I think it was in the New York Times, that this is like kind of a side thing, but the, chil- the children on reality shows, they're similarly not entitled to- Johnny K plus eight. Um, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. I think that's what I was reading. And and I was like, that is that is wild. But yes, reality show kids- you know, I, I'm not a huge reality show person when it comes to like anything that features children. But I would also say that um, when I was first looking into instances of 
people claiming social media profiles for their children. It was reality stars and influencers. And I think their thinking was, I'm going to claim it before someone else does and tries to impersonate the child. Yeah. And so I do think it was not necessarily like sinister. They were like, I'm going to get ahead of this. But they're aware enough that their child is already a public figure. And that um, there is sinister and, out and, there. Yes. Yeah. And so they that's like exerting a level of control over the the kind of uncertainty that comes with your child being a public figure. And they're all growing up now. Like a lot of the big ones are like adults now. I know. It's like the, yeah. you're going to have so many more articles mm-hmm. to write, Kate. I, can't. <laughs> I know. I'm so busy. You better get busy. <laughs> this is going to be like it happened again. It happened this again. This is your new identity. <laughs> I do think that that John and Kate plus eight, you know, came out and they had all mm-hmm. that that son of theirs it's the oldest that was like ostracized by the mom mm-hmm. and then you just have public drama and family drama just aired out right and I, I will argue that reality television is a thousand times worse than that of like posting yeah. your own uh-huh. kid on social media but it does show you mm-hmm. know with the parallels of Cami as far as being followed home and recognized and having that mm-hmm. same level of visibility in the world that I think parents don't really think about when they're posting their kid that as much Mm -hmm. as you and your immediate circle are not nefarious, there are nefarious people in this world. And stalking and harassment is a very real thing. And I I will say that the flip side of this to me too is that I see a lot of judgment around parenting decisions. And I see a lot of judgment around parents that do decide to share their kids and that do decide to do X, Y, and Z. And you have these martyrs coming out and saying, Mm -hmm. you cannot post your kid online. Like, what are you thinking? You don't even care about your kid. You're just doing this for views, blah, blah, blah. And I don't agree with that either because ultimately it is the decision of the parent to decide, you know, what they want to do and how they want to show up online and what they want to do with their kids. But what fascinates me is that when they do turn 18 and having that awareness up until that point and having that open conversation with them and having that, you know, ability and and clarity to respect their decisions and their boundaries as they get older and when they have that digital coming of age, whether or not they do want to be shared or talked about, I think that that's the golden ticket there. The thing that I wanted, like I always like wanted to try and stress in the article was like, especially like motherhood is so undervalued. And I think something that social media really, really revolutionized, like I, I used the term mommy blog before, and I like, truly don't mean it dismissively because like what I thought was the most like kind of incredible thing as mommy bloggers were coming up was that uh, a, a typically subjugated role of a stay at home mom suddenly could become the breadwinner for the family by posting about their children. Um, like I'm thinking of Love Taza, who actually is totally offline now. She like really disappeared. But like her husband quit her job and she was able to support her family. And so like that in it, on its own ways is in- incredible. I mean, I do think one of the reasons I imagine she stopped posting was her children were hitting an age where they were recognizable. Uh, they, were, they were becoming really fully formed human beings. Um, so that's obviously a downside. But the idea of something that's normally as like undervalued and overlooked and unrewarded as motherhood, like we kind of started talking about in the beginning, could find a place to get appreciation and validation and in some cases income. Like I understand that, but also 
mixing having your children perform with money gets really dicey. And then something else that I think about when it comes to reality shows or influencers posting their children is that you're you're burdening that child with the role of being a public figure without their consent in terms of the fact that they're going to grow up and people are going to know who they are and they're going to be accountable to an audience that they didn't ask for. You know, I'm thinking about Kellyanne Conway's child, Claudia, who went viral on TikTok because she was just kind of being a normal teen on TikTok. And specifically, she spoke out against Trump, but she went super viral and had all these people following her kind of for the intrigue of following the daughter of Kellyanne Conway. And therefore, like all of her behavior as a kind of a normal teenager, going through it a bit, lashing out, having struggles, like she was going through this very kind of, I mean, I, I can't, I don't know the ins and outs of her families, but like somewhat normal if we break it down to just being angsty, being upset with your parents, being frustrated in who you are, that's somewhat normal for being a teenager. She was burdened with doing that to an audience in a way that she probably like, you know, you can say she asked for it. She had a public profile and stuff, but like she's a child. She's not old enough to understand what that meant and what that was going to do to her. And I think it was probably very traumatic. And so I'm thinking about influencers who post their children to the point that the child can then grow up and have social media of their own have followings of their own. That's a whole responsibility that they kind of didn't ask for. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that example is a little bit more of a reflection of like the fact that she has a high profile parent that, you know, she can Mm -hmm. lash out against and that people do have very strong opinions about. Yeah. But even then, you know, that I, I would say falls more under the kid making their stupid decisions and having to live with their stupid consequences. Yeah. Uh. No, yeah. It's like not one-to-one because her mother wasn't an influencer. But when I just think about like a child growing up online and growing up like in public, it's difficult. And and it's something that I think like kind of seeing examples like Claudia Conway, like a parent having seen that should not knowingly burden their children with lightly. Yeah, absolutely. And Mm -hmm. even still – one in four Gen Zers plan yeah. to become social media influencers. 40% in the West, 33% on the East Coast. That is insane. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it makes sense because that's what they're growing up consuming. Like, yeah. And also, like, this gets into, like, more influencer industry stuff. But I think that's happening because it's an influencer's job to make everything look amazing and make it seem like they're living this perfect life that's them like doing a good job and so obviously when you're consuming it you're like oh I want to do that and especially you know it's the same way as like wanting to be like a pop star or a singer like if that's what you grow up consuming you're like that looks amazing and then we know from like Britney Spears it's not I mean I was on TikTok before we got on here like I'm getting like constant every day and I'm already an adult and even I'm like hmm maybe one day I'll get viral yeah. and like and that'll and that'll be my life sorted because I think that's also a little bit what it appears like it could just happen to you like kind of like winning the lottery like you can just kind of get chosen and then ostensibly or it seems like your life will be set and obviously there's more to it than that but that totally makes sense to me as much as it is like black mirror kind of dystopian yeah and uh let this be a reminder to everybody on lottery tickets the uh suicide rate the like amount oh of people God, that yeah. lose all the money within two seconds i mean let yes. this heed a warning yeah. on uh be careful what you wish yeah. for but i i think that there's we could have like 15 episodes on this um i know but i feel like we need to put a nice little bow on it at the end knowing all of this knowing that we have gen z is 
they're 18 through, what, 25, 26 mm-hmm. right now? I don't know. Yeah, um, around there, yeah. And then we have Generation Alpha following behind them, whatever generation is going to come after that. But when Gen Z and Generation Alpha become parents, what would you expect to see in this next generation of parenting as – these as the norm when it comes to how Mm -hmm. they are handling their social media presence at home, both of what they use and of what they teach to their kids um, based on everything that you're learning right Mm -hmm. now with this first generation of social media babies that are coming out. Yeah. Yeah, So this might be an optimistic answer. Like, and I think there will always be, as long as social media is as prevalent as it is in our lives, there'll always be parents who kind of unconsciously value engagement over perhaps sort of parenting. But I would like to think, you know, when we're talking about the way that ways that millennials can at least liken this to posting something embarrassing, Gen Z and Gen Alpha, as they become parents, they will actually have a one-to-one comparison. Like they will know what it was like to have stuff about them posted by their parents before they were ready. I'd like to think that the kind of keeping things locked down or keeping things more of a conversation or at least being willing to like posts and then take down and keep it keep it sort of free flowing. I'd like to think that that would be more of the norm simply because all these sort of now parents will have gone through that digital coming of age themselves and so that they it'll they'll know like oh my child won't want this or or they'll they'll understand when their child comes to them and it's like I don't like this. So that's what I'd like to think. Now if we're all living in some VR metaverse because that's what they all want for Christmas, I have no idea what that even means. But you know, it's hard to anticipate what social media will even look like then. But the one thing that we can kind of know for certain is that both of those generations will have lived through the thing that we're talking about now and can hopefully bring that awareness to their own parenting. I love it. I think that optimism is not mm-hmm. a bad thing when it comes to this. <laughs> I really don't. I, I think yeah. that ultimately at the end of the day, people are going to you know, figure it out and fumble through it. And mm-hmm. that's the whole point of this podcast is exploring up close yeah. these phenomenons. And the first social media babies becoming yeah. adults is a phenomenon that we get to learn from and grow from. Yeah. And I think yeah. everyone's going to get better for it. Kate, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode. Where can people find you, follow you, learn from you? And most importantly, where can they check out your article? So the article is on theatlantic.com. You can find me writing three times a week over on embedded.substack.com. It's a newsletter about internet culture. I'm on pretty much every social media, including threads, as Catherine Fiona. Check out things, what I'm I'm thinking over there. (laughs) Kate, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Social Complex Podcast. Your support means the world to me. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, be sure to leave a five-star rating and subscribe to our show. We'll be releasing a new episode every Tuesday, bringing you various stories, deep dives, and discussions around the complexities of social media in our modern world. To follow along for more, be sure to follow us at Your Social HQ on Instagram or check out Social HQ at www.yoursocialhq.com. I'm your host, Hillary Applegate, and I'll see you back here next week. Stay sane out there.